Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com slash GABFEST. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash GabFest. Hey, GabFest listeners. This is David Plotz. You're about to hear a chimera of a GabFest, a live GabFest with a special studio section put on at the top. So we taped this live GabFest in San Francisco on Tuesday night before the Republican presidential debate. We came into the studio again on Thursday morning after the debate to record our responses, our thoughts on the debate. So the first bit you're going to hear is live. Then we'll cut back to the studio for our post-debate discussion. Then we'll go back to the live show. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 18th, 2015, the live from San Francisco edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. And Thank you. by John Dickerson of Face the Nation and Slate. As you can hear, we are live. We're live at the Norse Theater in San Francisco in front of the largest crowd in GabFest history. If this, if this crowd were... Crowdiest, maybe? Yeah. It's the greatest crowd ever. It's huge. If this, if this crowd, yeah, if this crowd were a political candidate, it would be Donald Trump. <laughs> if this ben crowd Carson. were, it would be, if it were a startup, it would be Uber. And I suspect that most of you are here only because this is the cheapest way to get space in San Francisco for $30. Yeah. It's like the best rent you can get is to rent yourself a seat in here tonight. On this week's show, we will preview the second Republican debate, which is, of course, happening tomorrow night. We will ask ourselves if Donald Trump can be toppled in that debate. Then we'll talk about the coming shutdown of the government. It's deja vu all over again. Conservatives are about to shut down the federal government in Washington. Why is that happening? Will it be stopped? If you've ever been at any one of our previous live shows... We've talked about that on every previous live show, too. <laughs> then we have a special guest for our third segment. Merlin Mann is going to help us figure out how to live more productive, meaningful lives. And he's also going to solve politics as a profession for us. And we'll have 
cocktail chatter, and then we will have an audience Q&A. So prepare your devastating questions for John and Emily, but not for me. <laughs> hey, GapFest listeners. You thought you were live in a theater in San Francisco, but for the moment, you're back in two studios, one in Washington, D.C., where I, David Plotz, am, and a second studio in New York, where John Dickerson and Emily Bazelon are. It's through the magic of time travel. It's now after the debate. The show we were recording was before the debate. We're after the debate, and we're going to talk about what happened at the second Republican presidential debate, which happened in Simi Valley at the Republican the Repub- not the Republican. I was going to say like the Republican <laughs> the shrine. Reagan the, Re- the Reagan Library. The Reagan and Republican have just become completely conflated at the Reagan Library. Now, there's a weird situation happening, which is that John and Emily are actually sharing a microphone. It's really cute. Like they're sharing a, they're sharing an ice cream float at an old-timey ice cream counter. So they're, they're going to be intimate there. John, immediate reactions to the second debate. Well, it was a long debate, three hours. I think two things happened. One was everybody, we knew everybody was going to attack Donald Trump. That's expected. But before this debate, everybody who attacked Donald Trump, with the exception of Carly Fiorina, saw themselves to go down in the polls. It felt like something, like a switch flipped a little bit in this debate. And the attacks, while some of them were personal, it's the debate started off with Rand Paul saying that Trump was sophomoric. They then seems to sort of transition into a debate about competency, about whether he had the skills for the job and the temperament for the job, about the specifics of policy. And it seemed like the penalty for attacking Trump might have gone away. We don't know. And, and, but it seemed it was a free-for-all, but it wasn't um, – it seemed kind of grounded in specifics. And then – and we can talk about the, the period where it, the debate was um, – there was a time, and I thought we'd never be able to say this, where you wondered what happened to Donald Trump. He sort of disappeared in the middle. And then I guess the one candidate, if you had to focus in on anybody who, who had a good night, I think, in the debate, it was Carly Fiorina, and we can talk about why. Yeah, so Emily, yeah, talk well, about she why. Was super, well, I think she was the most effective at attacking Trump, and part of it is that she had this great setup question. You know, he had criticized her face. She, you know, in a pretty restrained way said, I think women everywhere heard what he said and knew what he meant, essentially. And I have to say, I had just like a feminist moment for her. I just felt like, you go. And I did know exactly what she meant. And the way he handled it was so awful. I mean, he, you know, pandered to her about how beautiful she is in this way that was so phony. And she wasn't having any of it. And I feel like the women of America, I hope we all rose up in that moment. Well, what was so completing about his attempt to kind of suck up to her in the end by saying, I think she's beautiful, is it finalized the picture, which is somebody who says nice things to your face and when everybody's watching, but then when they're not, says, you know, horrible, mean things about your appearance behind closed doors. Well, so we had that moment in the last debate and the post-debate furor over Megyn Kelly where Trump was being uh, manhandled for his rude treatment of Megyn Kelly. It had no effect on him in the polls at all. What's to think that this particular attack and his poor defense of it is going to make a difference? I think she'll go up. I'm not sure that Trump's poll numbers are going to go down from this night. I didn't feel certain of that at all. She just handled it in this really restrained, grown-up way and made him look like a bungling fool. She also had a very powerful moment in talking about Planned Parenthood and defunding it, but she was wrong. She gave a description of these, you know, the Planned Parenthood videos we've talked about before that was 
far more grisly and disturbing than those videos were. And that was quite jarring to me in the moment. Well, she made up um, a whole she bunch of stuff. She had a lot of passion. What? She made up a whole bunch of very specific stuff. Yeah. She made up stuff about the Planned Parenthood videos. She had this whole thing about, you know, the buttressing the Sixth Fleet, which is a pretty darn good fleet from what people seem to be saying today, and about uh, doing military exercises in the Baltics, which we are in the midst of doing. We're in the midst of doing military exercises in the Baltic. So she, Yeah, her fact check her is fact, not so great her, today. She, but she was so positive and so specific and so asserting about her facts that it kind of made up for the fact that they were lies. So it was very effective <laughs> because none of the Republican candidates on, on the stage were, one, going to attack her because, because I think she's haloed right now, and two... I'm sure they didn't know any better, and it wouldn't be worth it for them to attack her. So I think she just made up an enormous amount of ground, both with that Trump point and then by seeming so competent and specific uh, in a way that, that some of the other candidates were. I, I Did thought, anyone else think that Marco Rubio had a good night? Yes. I thought Marco yeah. Rubio was good. Marco Rubio seems to have just a he, – he appears animated. He also looks so much younger and better looking than all the rest of them. All of them. He, he's yeah. he, he. If you want youthful you. energy, he's the only one that has it. The rest of them just appear either old or 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 haggard, haggard in some fashion. Exactly. You you both have said what I would on uh, Fiorina. It was not just. And to your question, David, Megyn Kelly isn't wasn't a candidate, and so Fiorina has the, the chance to go up. I think Emily's right. It doesn't necessarily mean Trump will go down, although I think. We can return to that in a second. The, um, your question on Rubio, I think what Fiorina did and Rubio did and Christie did to a lesser extent was there were two prizes you could win in this debate. One was putting Donald Trump in his place. The other was taking a moment, grabbing it, and being assertive and appearing to have a command of the facts and a point of view that showed you were a more complete and interesting person than just somebody who was kind of pushing talking points to the end of their uh, you know usefulness in, in, a, in a single answer. And Rubio had those, had actual answers, had a kind of theory of the case. You know, sometimes when people are asked a question, they just drive the question back to whatever they've been saying in their stump speech for months. Rubio has actually a brain that's working and is and and made a pretty good case for why facts and and an understanding of foreign policy matters, where why Donald Trump can't just kind of get up to speed on day one in the presidency. Although I still think when I look at him, all the youth and vitality you mentioned is true. But I wonder if a party that tends to have older voters looks at Rubio and thinks, hmm, he's too young. Now the opposite could be true, but I just I his youthfulness is not an unalloyed good. No, I think. that's true. No, he looks much, much, much younger than everyone else. So that you're right. They may think, well, you know that that high school kid is sure good. I'm glad they let him out there. Is uh, <laughs> he's what, boyish, what was but... it? What did you think that Christie said, John? That was specific and effective. Well, I mean, he clearly came with a gambit in his pocket, and his gambit was every time that there's bickering, I'm gonna kind of pound and say this is all about regular people. And he started the debate by saying, don't turn the camera on me, turn it on the yeah, on the audience, because That's this is about annoying. you. And CNN and CNN did what he said. Um, I wonder how long, far he could have taken that, like, you know, playing director. Anyway, I mean, that was his gambit. And then there was a moment in a back and forth between Fiorina and Trump where they were bickering over their various business careers. Fiorina saying, if you ran the federal budget the way you did your company, which has had four bankruptcies, we'd be in big trouble. And then Trump said, you basically tanked HP. And Christie interrupted and said, stop this bickering. People don't give a damn about your careers. They care about their own jobs. It was a... Um, 
it was a good stage-managed moment. It's getting replayed in the aftermath of the debate, and that's part of what you want to do when these pre- candidates prepare for a debate. They want to grab, they want to have a set-piece moment that will get replayed in social media and on the networks afterwards. And so Christie has achieved that in that moment. I mean, it's uh, Thursday morning, it's been replayed a, a fair amount. So by that measure, he at least did that. Now, whether people see that and, and think, oh, yeah, he's really for regular people, I don't know. I am tired of Chris Christie. I think he is exploiting 9-11 in a way that has just gone too far. But my overall, right? Oh, it's just enough already. Um, My overall feeling about the debate was more than the first one, feeling like these people were clawing over each other to move to the right. Almost nobody stood up for some kind of moderate position. Carson asked about his own rather moderate comments on immigration, backed away. Jeb Bush, in a position where he should have defended Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, who is defensible, gives this like mamby-pamby answer. Maybe he's sort of pretty good in the face of a right-wing attack from Ted Cruz. It was just like waiting for a whole night of who is going to stand up and be in the middle. And to me, that made it feel like a, a night of disappointment for Bush in particular. Particular, I think in the very third hour, he finally had a couple of good moments, like great that he admitted to smoking pot and apologized to his mom. But there were so many ineffectual moments up till then. And talk about vacuous, empty sounding talking points. He was like the king of that. He obviously had a kind of set piece answer for on immigration where he was going to stand up and make the case in opposition to Trump. And he never it never kind of came through. And then when he was asked about speaking Spanish, where, again, he could have grabbed it and, and owned the moment, totally. he did a little. And then Marco Rubio walked in and just said, oh, no, let me show you how to do this. And then, like, did a three-quarters reverse, like, one-handed dunk by talking about his grandfather and how he learned about conservatism and, and the free enterprise yep. system yeah. from his grandfather in Spanish yeah. and that he speaks to immigrants in Spanish because he doesn't want to be interpreted. I mean, How do you say was, Hayek in Spanish? How do you say um, Ayn Rand in Spanish? <laughs> it was really... It, how do you say I just beat I, you at your own name in Spanish? One thing I would say about um, the moderate case that Emily's talking about, I think John Kasich tried to make that repeatedly. He both did. On Tough night for John Kasich, though. He Tough didn't. night, you say? Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought felt, he was good. No, oh, no I, I, I didn't. I, fe- I was so disappointed. I thought he was gonna, gonna be a lot better and stronger and have more clarity. He felt sort of fuzzy around the edges to me the whole time. Yeah, that's fair. He used humor pretty effectively a couple times. I left the evening thinking, huh, how about a Rubio Kasich ticket? They were seeming like maybe the people left standing. I think Rayhan Salam tweeted at some point, there are t- two races here, the race for like outsider who could be the least crazy outsider, and then the race for a plausible mainstream Republican insider. And I... Yeah, I thought Rubio, I guess Rubio and Kasich are both on the insider game. And I mean, I also thought Ben Carson had a pretty good night. I'm starting to understand why people like him. Really? Wow. I was so disappointed in Ben Carson. Well, first of all, his his total kick the can on on vaccines was Oh, that was awful. Yeah, Uh, you're right. And his failure to just stand up and be a doctor for a moment was if that's if that's what my pediatrician is going to tell me about vaccines i'm going to another pediatrician for my my separation surgery for my with my uh, conjoined twin good point uh, i'm uh, not going to defend uh, him that was all but i didn't i thought he was i thought he was really 
he just appeared again really out of a, his depth in a way that Trump also appeared. It was all it was very vague. It was very didn't really seem to know what he was talking about. He was always wanting to correct whatever anyone was saying about something that he had said previously. I don't know. I mean, I suppose if people if people really want total outsider who knows nothing, I guess he's a total outsider who knows nothing. <laughs> yeah. But 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 Trump and Fiorina at least had the air of like we're people who've accomplished things. And we have authority, Carson, and we know Carson doesn't. Or we Carson didn't appear. Wrong. Yeah, Carson appeared to to he he doesn't even play the fact that like I I you know I was the greatest uh, doctor in my in my game. I somebody who who's had tremendous accomplishments, who's overcome uh, adversity. He doesn't even do that. He doesn't even make his own case for himself. He just sort of stands. Well, there. I guess the one thing I will stick up for him since I said I thought he had a good night is that his low key demeanor is a little refreshing in the midst of all the aggressive intensity. And that's the low-key demeanor that's been helping him so far. So to the extent that he did well after the first debate when people were like, oh, he just disappeared, there's a different channel that he is on with his voters. And so he might have done just perfectly well with that channel. I think think the Fiorina rise takes a little from him because – the you know the people who are looking for the outsider i think she you know she does take from from him i don't know if she takes from trump i going back to emily's original point i think i think you could imagine him coming through this just fine although i think we we saw the beginnings of the the critique which is or the one that might actually well i mean this was always going to be the problem though that like he doesn't know much right. beyond his bluster right. and i mean i so i don't want to pretend like we discovered that but during the period where he wasn't speaking it occurred to me like everybody thought the thing that would doom donald trump is what he says no what what might doom him is the times when he has nothing to say and those are the times Ooh. when they were talking about policy wisdom and, and grasshopper substance wow that was a that was some deep zen koan action there john let's talk about scott walker who because it seems like his presidential campaign may have just come to an end was that as bad a night for scott walker as it felt, well, I, let me back that up. Both Jeb Bush and Scott Walker. <laughs> what do you came, think, David? Came, was it no, both enough? Jeb Bush and Scott Walker came into this having had terrible, terrible months, with a sense that they really need to turn around. My own read on last night was that Bush was very poor, but he wasn't poor enough for people to be to abandon him completely. He was just like man. I felt not like he good. did not want to be there, and maybe this yeah. is not for him. Right. That's definitely there was definitely some of that, but I, but I'm not sure that that's happened just yet. But I feel like it could. I I, I certainly think that the Jeb Bush's campaign, if he doesn't really perk things up, is is in trouble because he doesn't, as you say, doesn't want to be there. He doesn't do well in this format, which is the most public format. Is he going to perk things up? He seems incapable of perking. Yeah. He was ever ready. And don't ask someone to apologize to your wife if they're not going to apologize. And when you are asked to put some a woman on the oh my the God. bill, whatever it was, do not name a British person, no matter how accomplished. That and was an embarrassing say, moment. The people who named their like wives, mothers, sisters, yeah. whatever. I mean, I literally wanted to reach onto the television and strangle those right. people. As if there are no women of accomplishment right. in the entire history of the who, world. Who gave us Rosa Parks? Who came with that first? That was, like was Paul. Who was it? Paul? No, who started? No, the Rosa Parks no. bandwagon? Yeah. No, it wasn't. Or it got wasn't. on the Rosa Parks bus, I guess I should say. <laughs> Rubio? Rubio. They maybe. ended up, yeah, I think maybe Rubio. That they was ended the up play. having like four Rosa Parks. Yeah. Because yeah, Rosa yeah, Parks no, is the only American woman who deserves to be on a bill. That was it. And oh, no, Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Yeah. Anthony. That was it. Who was already, wasn't there already a Susan B. Anthony coin? Yes. The $1 coin? It failed. It comes out of subway token, you know, machines, and one is always sorry to see it. 
But Scott Walker didn't even make the Bush uh, threshold, in my view. Scott Walker really, he disappeared when he was on. He just didn't seem to, he didn't seem to have any game, particularly. He wasn't, he wasn't incoherent or anything. It just didn't, it, there was no reason to pay attention to him as opposed to anybody else. Well, yeah. also in the very beginning, I thought Trump did a great job of just eviscerating his record as a governor in Wisconsin. I don't think Walker had an effective response. And then I just sort of like X'd him out in my brain because he just seemed like humiliated to me. I suppose, though, it will only that will matter much more if that bit gets replayed and maybe it won't. The he tr- you know, he clearly came loaded for a moment and said, you know, we don't need another apprentice in Washington. And that was cute. But. When you think of the Donald you, Trump that didn't, takedown, you know that didn't work. No, no, it didn't work because Donald it Trump was isn't pre- the apprentice. Donald right? Trump no, the- I know, and it also like it just didn't. It didn't tell us anything about Scott Walker. No. So when Carly Fiorina knocked Trump back on the woman thing, you got a sense of her. You know, you got a sense that like she she did this on the fly. I mean, she knew it was coming. She knew they'd bring up the Rolling Stone thing, but the way she took him down used actually something that had been said just moments before and it just suggested a kind of felicity and if nothing else i mean these are just like theater notes but she just seemed in the game more than than walker who came with the like pre-planned line and you know that was really like all he brought for the evening you didn't think wow when this guy speaks he's got a he's got like a theory of the case that he wants to prosecute i mean that's what you got from marco rubio you got it from from Kasich too where it's like he, this person has deeply held views. Kasich talked about ISIS and the and the battle for hearts and minds. This is something I know from having talked to him that he cares a lot about. Yeah, but he good. was he was basically you know you you saw somebody kind of take an answer and 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 get passionate about a thing that he's like a, a theory of the world that that shows his brain is moving and he wants to kind of take policy in that direction, as opposed to some of the other answers, which were kind of untethered from that larger philosophy. All right. Let's do talk about some of the, the last candidates we haven't talked about, namely Cruz, Huckabee, and Paul. So Paul tried to sort of stake out a libertarian position. It didn't even seem like he was bothering to try to win the election anymore. It, was, it, it appeared that he was going for principle, which I liked because I like a lot of his principles. But it didn't seem that he he's that it didn't seem like that he felt he even belonged at the big table anymore. He almost felt like his dad. He is making points. I mean, his point on federalism and marijuana policy got a lot of good attention on social media as it was happening. I felt like he was he yeah. It seemed to me like he was not up there to compromise and try to massage his views. He was going to say what he thought, and he's not going to win the election. But you know, his name recognition will go up. What about Cruz and Huckabee? Cruz had I had the same reaction I always have, which is I just want to punch that guy in the face. So it felt like he must um, have been effective. Well, you know, I, I thought he was basically he replicated what he did in the first debate. And I kind of missed Cruz in the first debate. I mean, he is of all the candidates. My my point about Carson is Carson is who he is. And there's a channel. There's a series of viewers who have blindness for everyone but Carson. And so they're tuning into him, and when they hear him, they like what they hear, and they stay on the Carson theme. I think that's true with Cruz, but Cruz is speaking more deliberately to that audience. He, you, you really you feel like he's like got a plan, and he's not talking to the audience that we think is out there. It's to a very specific set of people and so when he speaks to them, it's not broadly or theatrically appealing. It's not 
terribly moving in a kind of general political sense. The way you can hear what Carly Fiorina says and disagree with it or think the facts are wrong, but you recognize in it a kind of um, uh, leadership moment, you know, a kind of command of, of the moment. And th- with Cruz, it, that's harder to see, but I think that that channel he's operating on likes what they see when he talks about, you know, judicial activism, um, when he talks about the establishment in Washington, although I thought he would have gone harder on that. Um, Bobby Jindal in the previous debate was much more Ted Cruz sounding about Planned Parenthood and defunding it in Washington than Cruz was in the in the bigger debate. Two more things. One, just a quick thing on the, the debate itself. Didn't you guys think it was a tremendous mistake to make that debate so, so long? It felt, yes. It felt deadly Endless. by the end. Made it, it took all the fun out of that. The, the Fox debate was so much fun. Now, you know, obviously your your second time is never as nice as your first time or something, some some sexually charged metaphor there. But it just felt it felt really, really long. And, and I didn't That's enjoy it. That's also not true. What's – yeah, I know. I just – I was just – I was just like trying. It was like – it's early well, I just don't want people to get – I don't want people to get confused The young people. That's advice for the young. about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and um, the, 27th, 100th time. Um, <laughs> all right. All right. Enough. That's how we're going to feel at the end of this debate cycle. It'll be like, really? Oh, no. Wasn't it not a mistake, I think, for, for them to, for take, to take as much time as they did? I think length was a challenge. I think um, they also did something else that was, a, was an interesting gambit, and I wonder whether you guys think it worked, which was to get – there was a constant effort to get the yeah. candidates to respond to the things the other candidates had said about them. Which they were constantly ducking. Yeah. And so I was found that, that a, really a useful annoying. vehicle for you? I did not think that worked. It was an attempt to knot people together across the stage, but it rarely, except for like the Fiorina Trump moment, really, rarely did it produce anything substantive. And then you just had these endless exchanges, too, because each person had the right to respond, which was tedious. I kind of liked the right to respond, but I didn't like the setups. They felt very forced. All right. Last question. Fiorina is now going to get a tremendous amount of attention. She's going to pop up in the polls. She's the only woman in the field, which is going to help her. She has a, has some Trump-like qualities in her outsiderness and her business experience, but she obviously has a very different demeanor. She's a non-politician, although I guess she, she's run for political office before. Are we going to discover that she's someone who could be, in fact, president? Could she, could she win this Republican nomination? Could she win a general election? What do you think, Emily? No. I think she's kind of scary. And there's something very um, harsh about her, I think. Even though I bonded with her in moments in the debates and other moments, I just found her a little, um, yeah, just hard. You know, her record at Hewlett Packard is really problematic. She did lay off all those thousands of people. Trump was right about that. I do wonder whether it's possible she might be vice presidential material, but I think I doubt even that. I just don't think she's like warm and appealing enough. I'm not sure how we get from here to there either. I mean, but I think if the dynamic is outsider, you know, Carson, Fiorina, Trump versus the political class, that's also interesting because could she even be the head of the non-political class group grouping? Because the Trump supporters and what Trump is selling, that kind of confidence, the facts be damned, is hard to replace. So I don't know. She's really, really on message, super well prepared. But she also, on certain 
questions is highly, highly political. And so when you are highly political, what, what do you mean by say that? Say if you though? ask her, if you well, I mean if you ask her, is the sky blue? And she does not want to answer it. She'll say, the asphalt is black. Now that what that's <laughs> like that's what's also known as being a politician, and that's highly familiar. But that's not the lane she's running in right now. She's running in the candor, non-political lane. Will that matter at all? Will anybody? I don't know. But I think that's a potential weakness of hers is that um, while one of the signature moments of her during the debate was a moment where she totally improvised, mostly she isn't that. And I wonder if that, you know, over time, whether that could be a challenge. Closing question on this, John. So we had this debate. Now we have a pretty big gap before the next debate, which is at the end of October, I think. What important things are going to happen during this six-week gap? The Democrats are going to debate, number one. But what else is going to happen? The Democrats are going to debate there's going to be a fundraising deadline on the 30th of September, which will give us some indication of the viability of some of the candidates. Um, And, you know, the Rubio, Paul, Kasich, Cruz. I mean, one of the things about Ted Cruz to remember is regardless of where he is in the polls, he's got a lot of money. And so that has that kind of raises him above the others. If somebody like John Kasich or Marco Rubio looks like they're running on fumes at the end of the next reporting cycle, there is a – I think this is true. I'm going to just intuit this or, or project I this. I love maybe. when John intuits. Well, not – yeah. There is at some point going to be a desire to winnow. And at some point, the popular conversation will decide that somebody has fallen out. So this, Just one person? I well, like six of them. Yeah. Well, maybe. But, I mean, so obviously the people who are in the first debate, the Patakis and Jindals and Grams, are, they've fallen out of the conversation. But you still have 11 people on that big stage. And you could imagine after the next reporting deadline, people saying, oh, John Kasich, you know, I really liked him, but gosh, he's got no money. And because they're just people once engaged want, like, movement. And so I think there's a um, – the fundraising – period could cause the insiders to then tell the reporters to then have the stories be about sort of candidates who can't make it happen. And, and I, so I think that's sh- the next big... And the candidates who should drop out, like, a, or could drop out at that level, which is like a Huckabee, won't because he doesn't actually depend on the media coverage anyway. He's not subject to that, right? He sort of has his own... Yeah, and he doesn't need the money in the way that... Yeah. I mean, and that's true, I think, with Rand Paul, too. Rand Paul could run on very little because he's running on a, a cause, he already may have slipped into the not likely to be president category, but he can still run and still wants to run because it's a message campaign right. at that point. Right. So that the would ones... be less true for Walker. I think right. Walker is, right. you know, Walker is the big one to watch at the next Walker and Rubio and Kasich just to look for um, troubling signs. Because then what happens is if your fundraising number isn't very good, then there are a bunch of stories about, you know, Joe Schmanicki, uh, a longtime Walker supporter said, and there's already that actually a quote about this. That actually is the name this. of Joe. That is the name of a long-time <laughs> Walker supporter. I'm definitely sure. There was one of them in, I think, the Times basically saying, like, he better pick up his game. Um, so you'll start to get those stories. And then once the stink gets on you, that's not good. All right. Let's go back to the Norse Theater in San Francisco to our live show. Let's hear from our first sponsor. The GFS is sponsored this week by Harry's.com. Harry's, as you know, delivers a superior shave. They bought a blade factory in Germany that's been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for nearly a century. 
and they've cut out the middleman and are offering an amazing shave at a fraction of the price of drugstore brands. Their starter set is just $15. That includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming gel. And as an added bonus, you, listeners, can get $5 off your first purchase with our code GABFEST. Thank you. After using our code, you can get a month's worth of shaving for just $10. So go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our code GABFEST with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, coupon code GABFEST. So Emily, I had one of those recurring nightmares the other night, like the kind of nightmare I had back in 2013, 2012, Everything, 2011. 2011. Like everything, you know, everything seemed okay. The country was in okay shape. You know, nothing disastrous was happening. I was in Washington and I went to the zoo, which is around the corner from my house, and it was closed. And then I went downtown to the mall and the mall was closed. And I said, what? Wait, the government is shut down. Why has the government shut down? There's no reason for the government to shut down. And yet here we are. It's you have really September. boring dreams. What's that? You have really boring dreams. Oh my God! You have no idea. I do have really boring dreams. This really? is more interesting than my usual dream. <laughs> my dreams are usually like I wake up. My dream is my, not. No, they wake up. My dream is yeah. They're I, really I, short. I, I went to work. <laughs> I went to work, and then I came home from work. That's literally the kind of dream I have. Do you have, I have like no inner life? Anxiety no, because dreams? your life you is so exciting. Like, oh my god, I forgot to do my homework. I'm in college. I signed up for. No, a class. I never forgot to. Do he my homework. never forgot to do his homework. But still, you could still. No, have I just dream. I have no inner life. I have no inner <laughs> psychology at all. But that's maybe true. that's what accounts for your thorough placidity. He's not placid. I'm trying to build anyway, him up. We, can we get in her life. I'm this is not, this is not the, the slate David Plotz's psychology gab fest. <laughs> and yet, how interesting Although that, that will would be. Although that will be a new show <laughs> on the Panoply Network soon. <laughs> you can count on it. And since there's no inner life, it'll be a very short show. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> all right. So yeah. it is... It's... <laughs> it's... It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable. <laughs> I don't think that word means what I think it means. <laughs> it's inconceivable, but barring some, some really delicate political maneuvering, the government is likely to shut down on October 1st. John Dickerson, take it away. Why is this about to happen? Well, um, how can I do this without making everybody stay here till breakfast? Um, so the basic thing is that the they have to find a way to keep the government funded. They could vote on a continuing resolution that would basically just keep the government funded at the current levels and then just be done with it for a little while. But the problem is the president has said we need to lift the spending caps on domestic spending and uh, on defense spending, and I'm not going to sign anything that doesn't do that. So that's over here on the left. On the right, you've got... Ted Cruz leading a charge that says we are not going to vote for any increase or any funding bill at all that funds Planned Parenthood, whether it's the 500 uh, billion that that Planned Parenthood gets, 500 million, 500 million that Planned Parenthood 500 gets. 500 billion would be really yeah, great. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> forget the Pentagon. The abortion, yeah. industrial, the abortion industrial complex. So, and, and, and Ted, mostly birth control <laughs> and STD testing. Thank you very much. Ted Cruz is saying, and 31 members of the House have said they will not vote for any spending measure that funds Planned Parenthood. And so you've got this problem. Now, adding to the problem is that you've got four Republican senators who are running essentially against Washington, Cruz being one of them, who've all said they won't 
vote for anything that, that continues funding Planned Parenthood. And so the leaders have to get legislation through. And in the House, it means John Boehner is very likely to need the votes of some Democrats to pass the spending measure. And we should say... Which is how we've avoided government shutdown in the past. It is indeed how we've done, how we've avoided that. And we should say that that Republicans, when they came into office, said, we're going to go back to regular order. We're not going to have these cliffhanger moments. We're going to vote for the appropriations bills. We're going to run this place the way it's supposed to be run. And so they've already, they're already in a position they didn't want to be in. But the more they need Democratic votes, and this is John Boehner's argument to his conservative rank and file, is the more every Democratic vote we need requires buying off the Democrats. And the Democrats are going to be even more kind of grabby and demanding in these negotiations because their view is that if the government shuts down, Republicans get the bulk of the of the blame. And there are enough Republicans out there who will say, you know, this is really dumb. We're getting blamed for this. In other words, there will be Republicans ratifying that message. And so Democrats are going to want more from John Boehner, which means he's going to have to give them more, which means he'll start to lose Republican votes. And it's hard. It's like building a mush snowball. It's hard to keep it together to get the thing passed. And yet the counterpunch to all of that is there are Republicans in office whose electoral concern is a primary challenge from the right. Right. So they need something that seems like they are sticking it to Washington, showing that they have real convictions, standing with Ted Cruz, and right now defunding Planned Parenthood is that thing. Right. And well, two things. One, also in the wake of the Iran vote, in which basically Republicans are angry that the president is going to get his Iran deal and they weren't able to stop it. Um, And then there's just other business. They've got 12 days to work. Right, twelve days in the rest of the year. Please. Twelve days until Octo- only until October first, or till yeah, the end. Twelve days until October first. But that's okay. still not that. the legislative year. So I mean, the fiscal year. They've got twelve days to work that out. Plus, they've got other things. They've got highway funding to deal with, and so um, cyber security. I think well, is also in Boehner's list. Yeah. So that's not the only thing going on. But your point is um, important in terms of the primaries they have to get over. But then Mitch McConnell and John Boehner, who would like to pass a continuing resolution and not have this problem are thinking about the general election in 2016, in which you have, and particularly in the Senate, you have people up in battleground states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, and where Mitch McConnell's majority in the Senate could be up for grabs if, in a general election context, the Republicans are seen as both ineffective and shutting down the government and so forth. Right. That's sort of the grown-up for the good of the party in the long-term perspective. And then you have people like Ted Cruz or the congressman who's in the 75% Republican right. district, and they just have a different set of incentives. Right. They have to have a fight. I mean, it's it's a kind of a pain when government shuts down. But when it happened last Those time do. in, tw- I think, 2013, right, John? Right. It shut down for a couple of weeks and everyone said, oh, the Republicans are really going to get killed on this. They did not get killed on this. In they 2014, won. they came back and just crushed the Democrats in the 2014 election. Why should Republicans be so scared of shutting down the government? It doesn't seem like there's much cost for them to bear. You could also imagine, adding to your argument, is that people are kind of anesthetized to the shutdown thing. We've been at this cliff so many times. They're like, yeah, all right, whatever. You know, there are plenty of stories, too, about how 78% of the people get paid and people get back pay and like, I, that it ain't what it, yeah, a shutdown ain't what it used you to know, be. You know, yeah, I didn't, I learned something today, which I didn't realize before, which is that the president has a huge amount of discretion to determine who is an essential worker. Yeah. And he could declare all that air traffic controllers are non-essential workers and they wouldn't get paid and they wouldn't work. And then the air traffic controls system doesn't work and 
UPS doesn't fly and FedEx doesn't fly and, and my flight home doesn't crisis. fly. And then you can imagine, but, well, then, but the way the president ha- has handled it before, he's basically said, oh, everyone's essential. Well, and so there's no, there's no particular um, pain that's born. But the answer to your question is in 2014, the electorate was a completely different electorate. It was a midterm electorate. This is a general election electorate. You have different voters turning out. They tend to be less partisan in 2014. The bulk of the people who were energized to vote were conservatives. That helped Republicans. The races themselves were taking place on a good map for Republicans, which is, say, in Republican states. Now the map is good for Democrats. If your nominee of the party is Hillary Clinton, who, despite her extraordinary drop in the polls among women voters this last few weeks, presumably, if she were to get the nomination of the party, would have strength among women voters, which means in those battleground states, you're going to have a lot of people turning out who are potentially going to vote for the Democratic candidate in the Senate races. And then that really hurts all those guys running in those battleground states I mentioned. So, Emily, I have a question for you. So this is really a Planned Parenthood fight. This is, this is, I think you're right that the conservatives were looking for something to have a fight about, but Planned Parenthood really popped up. You, when we were talking before the show, you were saying, you know, what's amazing is you have the rise of marriage equality. You have Black Lives Matter getting a lot of positive attention. Abortion rights needs a better PR agent. Why is Planned Parenthood so poor at winning support for its own cause. You know, I mean, maybe I'm just blind to this. I cannot find Planned Parenthood at fault here. I feel like abortion is more divisive and and has not... The, the evolution that we've seen, particularly on gay rights in this country, has not happened for reproductive rights. And I think that's because people have more mixed feelings about abortion, that there's a sense that there are victims in abortion, which is just not the case. But for, well, how can you not hold Planned Parenthood at fault for not creating a, an affirmative case for abortion? They've done a really bad job of that. Or, the, or abortion rights well, supporters in general have done a, a very poor job at creating an affirmative case for, for this. Well, I do think it's important to think about the whole pro-choice movement as opposed to Planned Parenthood. Like, so for a second, I mean, Planned Parenthood has become a pretty important political as well as medical um, force in this country. But it's also true that Planned Parenthood's primary mission is to provide comprehensive health care services to women and especially poor women. And, you know, just to go off on this track a little bit, more, Louisiana has already has tried to cancel its contract with Planned Parenthood and presented this list of supposedly hundreds or even thousands of providers that could easily take Planned Parenthood's place. But this is ludicrous because what Planned Parenthood does is it takes Medicaid and deals with the lower reimbursement rates and all of the serious paperwork hassles that mean that most healthcare providers don't want to have anything to do with Medicaid. They are not easily replaced because they are providing this incredibly important That's not, that was not, services. that's that's not the question. So, no, the question is why. But it is, but it is, the is question related that, in the sense that, well, I want to hear what you want to say. Well, no, I was going to say it's the question because what the, the fight that's taking place right now, the reason that conservatives in the House believe that they have a different approach here than the one that didn't work for them in the government shutdown over the Affordable Care Act is that in the Affordable Care Act, they had no alternative. So they said, we're going to defund it. And then that was it. And there was people would say, well, yeah, we're going to defund it. But what about all these people who are going to be without health care? Right, so what they believe they have now is an alternative, which is to say that anything, any, the money that went to Planned Parenthood will just go to other health centers and that that will replace what they do. And what Emily's saying is that you can't do that because what Planned Parenthood right. does is serve a community. I, I'm you're not saying, no, I don't, I'm, but I'm that's the totally turf the fight. No, no, but my point is like ever since Roe v. Wade, it's like been a 40 year losing battle or maybe since Reagan, it's been a 35 year losing battle 
well, the abortion rights supporters have just lost this PR fight at every single turn. So I think you can say, make a few points about that. So one is that the for a very long time, the primary talking point, and I don't mean that in a cynical way, of the pro-choice movement has been this is a choice that women are making, a choice between a woman and her doctor and the government shouldn't interfere, a libertarian argument in essence. And that argument has only gotten the pro-choice movement so far, right? There's a way in which it doesn't have the kind of moral urgency, or at least it hasn't swayed the number of people that I think a lot of feminists expected it to have. So so there's that problem. And maybe what you're also arguing about is the need for more women to come forward and talk about the benefits of abortion in their lives, the way in which it allowed them to pursue, right, the paths they wanted to take on, and to have children at the times in their lives that felt right. That has been a hard movement. I mean, there have been, so Katha Pollitt has made this argument really strongly in her last book. It has a lot of um, purchase to me. It seems like it's right. And yet I also think that the same things that are holding back the country from shifting on this issue make it really hard to build a huge wave of support. There's still a lot of stigma around abortion. People don't necessarily want to stand up for it in that way. There's an assumption that it's shameful that, you know, women carry a huge amount of regret and um, feelings of distress about it instead of recognizing that there's just a huge spectrum of emotion and that it's okay to feel however you feel about it. So you're right. That kind of argument remains out there to be made. But in the meantime, we have Planned Parenthood embattled once again, in part because of, you know, these controversial videos. In fact, the Republicans investigating Planned Parenthood and making this argument about defunding it aren't even really talking about the videos and the fetal tissue donations. They are now just making this argument, essentially, we don't need Planned Parenthood, as if there's some, like, ghost set of women's health clinics for poor people just Wait. standing <laughs> out there. Like, it's just not the well, case. But well, but no, they have the, they have the the clinics. It's just as you say, those clinics don't take. Well, yeah, except right, those yeah, clinics. Yeah, but I mean, don't you're, but, but it's people. not. But it's not. They're not ghost clinics. They're clinics that just don't take. Yes, they're those clinics people, for but, people with private health care. Right, but when you say ghost, like somebody's going to think like there are no other clinics. There are clinics. Someone's going to think true. they're actual ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> There are clinics, and if clinics changed how they were, their but, reimbursement policies, but I mean, if you going to a place and asking them to take Medicaid is like, no, and why? And we know how the much the Republicans million. then want to raise the Medicaid well, reimbursement. Right, exactly. Why not? Why couldn't they take the five hundred million and disperse it among those existing healthcare providers? that would incent them to start taking Medicaid. Because there are a lot of disincentives to taking Medicaid. It is just an enormous hassle. If you talk to healthcare providers, you have to, you have to have a staff set up to deal. And let's also be clear. We are not talking about the provision of abortion right now because Medicaid absolutely a hundred percent does not fund abortion. We're just talking about all the other services Planned Parenthood does. And I mean, the last thing I feel strongly about saying is that the notion that you would then leave Planned Parenthood only providing abortions, that you would take away from it all the other functions. Well, it's, you know, if you are a person who believes in the right to abortion, that is terrifying because the more abortion is walled off, the more it is separate from our healthcare system, the easier it is to target in all kinds of, you know, violent as well as simply anti-choice ordinary ways. And that would really be problematic long term. So this is a fight worth having. The Democrats have to have this fight. So, John, just let's end this with with your 
best prognostication. I'm sure you'll you'll shilly shally, dilly dally, wiggle waggle. But is any chance that we don't shut down? Or what do you think about like that two-day shutdown? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> like, October first is on a Thursday, so yeah, it can shut like, down Friday, the Saturday, and then come shutdown. back. Shut down Friday, and then back yeah, on that's Monday. sort of the that's sort of the worst of all wor- worlds, though, because you get the pain of the shutdown to the extent there is pain, and then whatever they do to solve it is not going to be sufficient for the people who you know want to defund P- Planned Parenthood. So I don't know. <laughs> what do you Emily? think? I think they're going to just have a clean continuing resolution that just funds everything for three months and they'll just kick it forward because yeah. that just seems and like then the, the Republicans who are against this can thing. just curse John Boehner and Mitch McConnell and say that they tried and can not I, vote for it. Can I add one other wrinkle here that's sort of um, captures what's weird about this uh, election year is that in a lot of the coverage of this, and in fact, in some of the conversations, although I haven't, I've been paying more attention to the presidential and less to, to speaking to members of Congress, but there is this argument that the forces, the 31 members in the House and those who are pressuring John Boehner to remove all funding are gaining strength and motivation from Donald Trump, who has captured this feeling, which is very real, and he's tapped into it in the Republican ranks, that like we're sick of being sold out by our representatives in Washington and constantly betrayed. But the thing is, Donald Trump has said very favorable things about Planned Parenthood. So on the one hand, they're being encouraged by his tapping into the grassroots that's angry with the capitulations of the establishment. Yet on the specifics of the issue, Donald Trump has actually said, and and he's donated to Planned Parenthood and said favorable Secret things. liberal that man is. Well, I just mean, it's just, it's just one of the many um, complexities of the... Um, of this season. We had to get Trump even in there. <laughs> Let's hear from our next GabFest sponsor. We're sponsored this week by Bonobos. Every guy wants to look as good as John Dickerson, but few want to put in the effort that it takes to maintain a stylish wardrobe. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. They have clothes for any body type, any fit preference. You can easily browse online through top quality styles from your home, there's free and easy shipping and returns. There's personable and fast service. And you can try clothes on at one of the, their guide shops before you buy. So you can look stylish, feel comfortable, and pick your perfect fit from slim, such as me, standard, maybe John is kind of standard, and tall, such as Emily. <laughs> For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order when they go to bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. We're going to bring out our guest for our third segment. Our guest is Merlin Mann. Merlin Mann is a godhead for John Dickerson, so I'm going to hand this over to John for an introduction. You can introduce him, and then he'll come out. Merlin, are you still here? We really hope you're here. Come out, Merlin. Come Come on out. out. It's fine. So I'll try and make this short. I don't know where to begin with Merlin, because for Mer- Merlin, for me, who I first got to know through 43 Folders, his, um, one of his many sites, one of his many outlets in life. Uh, so I'm, as the faithful listeners of the GabFest know, I'm into, you know, systems and productivity and organizing my pencils in just the right way. And so it keeps my life ordered from the chaos that's 
just shimmering around me. And so Merlin was, uh, you know, I felt a kindred spirit when I got to, uh, when I started reading his work. And then I actually found him. And so for me, Merlin is proof of the internet and its greatness. So Merlin is responsible not just for the um, introduced me to Getting Things Done, which I then foisted on David. Not and, me. No, Emily. Emily is getting y- nothing yet. done. Yeah. Um, but then also Merlin introduced me to Richard Hugo, the poet, who is and and uh, the triggering. Right. Come on, Richard the Hugo. triggering Everybody? town. The book, The Triggering Town, is fantastic, which I wouldn't know about without uh, Merlin. Don Murray's writing book. I wouldn't have known without you, which is a fantastic book about the craft of writing. The Avet Brothers, uh, Murder you, in... You're a terrific listener. Yeah, That's Murder amazing. in the City. I had never... And when you, like... I was like, oh, my God, Murder in the City. And then... And then uh, that was I had any, nobody... I had no idea that people were reading what I was writing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. No. I, I had a long list, but it's, I don't have it with me. But there are other things on the list as well that you're responsible for. So... And so then I stalked him, and now I got him on stage. So um, we're really... Our relationship is really improving here. David, should I hand it back to you? So, Merlin, you, you've had different lives, but one of your lives is a sort of a previous, a little bit of a previous life is as a productivity counselor, somebody who taught people how to be productive. Can people be taught how to be productive? Emily, Emily says no. Unteachable. (laughs) Well, it depends on what you want to be productive about. Or, you know, kind of why you want to be productive. Like, <laughs> people, people often want to go like, oh, you're the inbox zero guy. Let me share my phone. I have 65,000 unread emails. And I'm like, are you okay with that? And they say, yeah. And I go, well, then you're fine. <laughs> I sat next to someone on the plane the other day that was like that first. She asked me if um, I, I took my iPhone out. She asked me if it was a smartphone. And then she showed me her iPhone and it had 4,100 messages. But she seemed perfectly happy. <laughs> she didn't know about airplane mode, though, which I was like, Oh, no. Yeah, we were really up high. So I but she wasn't, like, plucking her. at imaginary hairs or something? She wasn't, like, yeah. a crazy person? <laughs> no, like, it's, uh, that, that's the funny thing about all this stuff, is that what I came to realize over time was that there's no real system that you can, you know, kind of teach anybody. Like, show up on time, take a bath. Like, there's stuff we should all learn. But then there are other kinds of things where it really depends on what your hang-ups are. And take a bath? Take a... <laughs> Also, John, I've been looking at the uh, reports uh, <laughs> on some of your uh, your, your ability to uh, sell flowers at the airport has been dropping. <laughs> if you're if you're going to be in this organization, I should start a cult. I could be so rich. Yeah. Um, no, so but wait, I, you're more doctrinaire yeah. than that, aren't you? Do you really? I mean, am I? Am I? <laughs> you know, there was a time when I thought that those all the systems and all the books and all the notebooks and all of the like Excel spreadsheets could help you to emulate something like care. And what I've come to realize over time is that like, if you care super intensely about what you're doing, you'll find a way to make it work. And that all the distractions that come along, all the procrastination, all those kinds of bugbears that we like to blame all of our problems on are because we have not figured out what to care intensely about and what we're willing to sacrifice to do that. And once you do that, it kind of lines up on its own. You don't, you don't need the notebooks. You don't need the spreadsheets. Write this down, John. Write it down. boy. <laughs> Do but you that, want one notebook or you want the second <laughs> notebook? Because I don't know which notebook to write like, it down but each in. Of us, each of us has our own, own, own needs for those kinds of things. But like, I don't think there's any need to turn it into a cult. It's a matter of saying, like, if you're getting what you want accomplished and you're doing the things that you want to do, you don't need to what, But what about people who are not getting what they want accomplished? Aren't you talking to the not ones? Isn't that your audience? 
I think if you're somebody who wants to do something creative or you want to do something that's rewarding and feels like a little bit of a reach, you will find almost anything in the world to keep you from doing that, from becoming the person that you're, you kind of want to become. And you will find a way. There's, you're always two notebooks away from being who you want to be. Like You will always find a way to have another barrier to that. And the key is to just sit your ass in the chair and actually just do the work for you. Also, this is the problem. with You two are incredibly good at like work needs to be done. You sit down, you write the story. Oh, the worst. Both of you are that way. It's incredibly annoying. <laughs> Others of us find a lot of other things that need to be done in advance of the story we need to be writing, as both of you know, as my editor. Although, actually, I mean... You always get your work done. Yeah. You do. In but, that. God, the process is hell. Um... I guess I'm a little bit befuddled by this because I'm not. I'm definitely not in the Baslon camp, which is just like, oh, it's you're in. It's inbuilt. You have the temperament. You have the Baslon temperament. Everything gets done. What's your problem? What? Um, Whatever. But on the other hand, I I also I think the habit. I mean, the thing that I've noticed, and and I'm interested in your take on this, Merlin, is that every time I adopt one of these things, I do adopt. Occasionally, I'll adopt. A, some methodology, some new way of taking notes, some new way of organizing. And 99 times out of 100, it lasts for, you know, three weeks, a month, two months, and then it's gone. And, you know, during that, for that first week, you're like, that was awesome. That is so great. That list is so useful. But then by the end, you're just back to the the same old habits you have. So does that mean that that two-month period was useless or it was actually useful because, I don't know, because something happened? It's a little bit like like drinking salt water. You know, that that whole idea that it is. Who does that? Uh, people who are at sea and don't have water, yeah. and they think that like not good for them. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because <laughs> there's no Doesn't water. Go well. Well, there's a there's a thing they say like if the worst thing you want you, you could do like if you're on the raft like you know is, is to start drinking salt water because it feels like you're quenching your thirst but you're actually making it much much worse. You probably have fantastic kidney health because you don't do that. But but the problem is a lot of people in, in town will like as soon as you feel like the slightest resistance. This is a term like Stephen Pressfield uses in his book, The War of Art. Did you, did you yeah, yeah, yeah. No, probably it's suggested like whatever, by you. Whatever it is. No, but resistance is the thing that keeps you from doing the work, whatever that work is. And as soon as you start to feel that resistance, your impulse is not to sit down and write 500 words. Your impulse is to go, I need a different program, or I need a mind mapping thing, or I need some kind of markers or whatever. So, I mean, I guess the, sh- the short answer is that if, if something gets you closer to producing the thing that you want to make, you're on the right track. And if it's taking you further further and further in this this direction that's not getting you there. That's a, that's a terrible idea. But it's so hard to find that line because when we see people out there who are making the stuff that, that we admire, you know, and they, they go out and they buy a fedora and they drink some whiskey in a bar and that feels like a real Tom Waits kind of way to create something. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think Tom Waits was probably astonishingly sober for a lot of the stuff that he actually wrote about oh, being Oh, man, a really? You think so? Uh, I really do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, do I do, I do. So here's a question for both of you who had to go do totally new things. Didn't you feel like you had to like a, figure out a new system for your new lives? When you I have jobs? had to change the rhythm of my work. So because I'm doing m- not entirely, but more longer projects, I have to figure out how to stay focused on that. And the hardest thing for me is starting to write something that is longer than 
the 1200 word piece that I train myself to write at sleep pretty quickly. Like that's right. something I know I can do. I have a lot of, but when I'm doing something longer, I don't have the same level of confidence or mastery and to get going is really, really hard. There's like, I can feel how hard it is to get the gears to turn. Because I wonder whether we're all now needing more of the metacognition that this is really all about, right? Which is, I mean, building these systems for how you get your stuff done is basically thinking about how you do what you do. And to the extent that we're all now in jobs where we have to do that more, knowledge work or because we're in newer jobs more often than people were 40 years ago, there's more of an appetite for this stuff and a genuine appetite for it. It's not just dickering around with, with, uh, I with can stuff see that, for the but sake I guess the other thing I feel, and maybe this is just me, but I feel like I've actually been the most, um, it's been the easiest for me when I've let go of some sense of productivity and the and time ticking and 500 words a day that actually I have to make peace with the fact that there is nothing linear about trying to write something long. At least not for me. It's incredibly inefficient. It's about like reading something three times and forgetting about it, then going back and putting pieces together and that it has to be iterative and loopy and not in my control. And that if I try to be too um, regimented about the progress I'm supposed to be making, it actually gets in my own way. I have to like let go of that. Can I bring this to politics actually? Because the one, I think one thing that makes politics different than almost any other kind of work is that the actually increasingly the goal of many people in politics is not that there actually is no goal of making something so that there isn't it used to be if you were if you're a governor i guess you can you know get a stadium built you can get a road built put your name on it and you're like that's awesome i built that but most of what balance your budget you have to run a government you're an executive of a large organization right but if you're if you're a legislator if you're one of these people who who's voting on something there's never anything that you have made like, you never can look at something and say, like, oh, I made that. Well, well people have felt that be. way about legislation. There used to be. Right, there used to be. It used to be true. But it's that's one of those no jobs where... gone, essentially. Are there now people in office who want to have their names on zero? Let They want to make their name on killing legislation. Well, it depends who's president and who's in what party. But um, they still want to do stuff. It's just that the impediments are so much higher. But don't you have to just like adore the process? It seems yeah, like, it seems like that's, like, right. that's one thing that's that separates whether you're a barista or a somebody who gets bills killed. Like it seems like a big common ground would be that you just want to live and breathe that process. I had a friend who recently ran for city council in um, in Seattle, and it was so dispiriting in so many ways because you realize that like it is like the person who wants to wrestle the pig, like wants to get dirty. It seems like the, like when you meet people who are in politics, they're really like a different. It's almost like meeting people from Hollywood. Like, they're cut from... But they're much uglier. Possibly. As we say in Washington. But they're cut from different cloth. Like, the person who says, like, you know what, I did it in UCB classes, and now, like, I'm just going to go to, like, every audition. That's just the thing that I do now. And, like, it doesn't matter if I get turned down, because I will just do this forever until I die. And somebody in politics is very different to go, like, oh, you know, I I want this... um, tunnel at the, you know, Louisiana State University Stadium to be named after me. But, like, you would have to be that person who just, I just want to, I don't want to, like, I want to eat policy and crap thunder. Like, this is what I want to do all the time. I just want, I want to, I want to put my hand into this machine, and I don't care what shape comes out of it. Like, that's what it takes to be a politician at this point. And if you're expecting anything, like, more noble than that, 
that's not your game. Isn't that kind of where we are at this point in some way? Well, I think if you're fed by the adulation of the crowd, I mean, it's now easier to get fed by just being um, a personality in politics than by being a person who slowly accrues legislation, climbs up the ladder, then passes a piece of legislation or gets earmarks and gets highways built with your names on it or, or delivers goodies to your state. That's like you can find a way to fame and adulation absent productivity. You can get on Facebook, you know? <laughs> Just get on there and get a bunch of thumbs. Yeah. But I mean, are we going to see more like uh, of the like uh, Tip O'Neill's in the future, like the Tips O'Neill's? Like the kinds of people who can just lay down an entire like lawn of largesse, like, yeah. you know, for people and, and like be able to create those systems? And who make lots of deals. I mean, essentially we've 100%. taken away that kind of power because we don't believe in earmarking, we don't believe in backroom deals. It's really hard to imagine. It seems like people like sometimes go into politics thinking that they're going to be a rock star, not really realizing they really need to be a bouncer. Like there's a whole different kind of musculature. It's like, oh, I'm here to just accept your affection. And it's more like, no, you need to crack heads. I mean, isn't that a fundamental difference? <laughs> John? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm trying Donald to Trump could have been a bouncer. Yeah. All right, let us move on to <laughs> cocktail chatter when you're uh, bouncing outside the club and Emily Bazelon comes along with her drink and is like totally rowdy. What is Emily Bazelon going to be talking about? No, it's so funny. I think of these topics beforehand and I forget that I'm supposed to be like having fun instead of earnestly spouting off. But here's my earnest topic. So sorry, everyone. Um, Well, you really know how to set them up, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was writing last week. I took a kind of crash course in the history of seeking asylum. And what I learned was that the world did a much better job in the 20s, in the 50s, and after the, the Vietnam War in dealing with mass numbers of people with what seemed like very legitimate claims to be refugees, people who had a well-founded fear of being persecuted, than we're doing now. And each time in these previous instances, so in the 20s, after the Russian Revolution, there were a million and a half Russians who fled to Europe because they were fleeing the Bolsheviks. And the, at the time, fairly new League of Nations took a look at them. They were stateless. The Soviets had stripped them of citizenship. And the League of Nations had this pretty simple um, remedy. They issued certificates of identities to all Russian refugees. That was the category. And more than 50 countries recognized those documents and let people in and let them work and resettle. And then... This system broke down when the Nazis were rising into power to the detriment mostly of the Jews. But then after the Second World War, there was this moment of shame where at that point the new UN um, and the World Refugee Organization were created again to deal with this huge wave of displaced persons. And the World Refugee Organization had a fleet of boats that it used to ship people around the world who needed new homes. And again, those people were absorbed and we're talking about millions of people. following the Vietnam War, there was, um, you know, I sort of remember this from childhood, a flea, a, a, mil- a couple of million Vietnamese people fled the aftermath of the war and communist Vietnam. A lot of them were boats. They were called on boats. They were called boat people. And they started landing in Thailand and Malaysia and Singapore and other um, countries in the region to the point that those countries became overwhelmed by the urgent short-term humanitarian needs. And the world had a big conference. The West said, 
said, okay, we'll pay for this and we'll resettle these people. And in fact, 1.8 million Vietnamese were resettled. So this is not an intractable problem that we're having right now with all the people who are fleeing Syria, Eritrea and Afghanistan and other countries. This is something the world actually knows how to do, but there has to be this kind of global recognition. And I feel like one huge thing that is missing right now is a sense of responsibility for the origins of the conflict. The U.S. and France and maybe some other places felt responsible for the Vietnamese and nobody seems to feel that way about the Syrians. And I feel like, you know, watching Europe um, so argue over what it, uh, what are relatively, their, their agreement to take only these small numbers, the United States, Canada, Australia, we're talking about taking really minuscule numbers of people given the need. And it just, there are much better antecedents. So um, anyway, that's the history that I learned. <laughs> All right. That was like two drinks worth. That was a lot of. I really buttoned That was some heavy, heavy, person. grim drinking yeah. there. Hitting uh, the person. Merlin, what is your chatter? Well, I, uh, I also have a lot of concern about uh, global issues. <laughs> I want to talk about a television program called Adventure Time. <laughs> Are any of you familiar with Adventure Time? It's a television show that you can watch on your television. I, I don't want to just uh, endorse the show, although you should be watching Adventure Time unless you're an animal. It's a wonderful program. It's kind of like D&D meets cartoons, meets your brain, meets dreams. It's very special. But in particular, I want to, um, I want to chatter. <laughs> I'm about to, gosh, I'm sorry. I was about to use the terminology of your competitors. I was about to endorse, and I think I'm supposed to chatter. Oh, you can endorse. You can endorse. Oh, you can endorse. endorse. We yeah. allow the terminology of the Culture Gap Fest on them. I will... Uh, I will chatter about a uh, podcast. There's a podcast about Adventure Time called Conversation Parade that I highly recommend. What now, if you are a... Uh, go ahead. No, it's a great name, Conversation Parade. Conversation. It feels like a 1950s, like, I don't know, section Didn't your mom magazine. host that show? Yeah, exactly. Right. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sponsored by Whirlpool. <laughs> yeah. Happy homemakers when they're not on the conversation parade. Camel filterless, you're home for the conversation parade. Inhale deeply, doctors love it. The thing about Adventure Time is it's more than a cartoon. It's a lifestyle. It's very deep. There's a lot to get out of it. And it's a wonderful podcast I want to recommend because we're talking about podcasts. At least I'm thinking about podcasts. And Conversation Parade, it's John Moe, who you might know uh, from the internet, and uh, Open Mike Eagle, who's a terrific uh, rapper and hip-hop guy. And uh, it's a limited series, 12 episodes. They just finished their 12th episode of the season. If you're an Adventure Time person, you need to be listening to Conversation Parade. And what I love about this is it gets into the intricacies of this show. It gets into, is Princess Bubblegum a fascist leading a surveillance society? What is the true nature or nature of evil and the Ice King? Now that we understand what the crown, right? And what the crown is doing to him, as you, as you certainly know. <laughs> What do we really understand about the multiplicities of BMO? Is it a he? Is it a she? Is it both? Is it neither? It's a video game. And they really get into this. On the show, they talk to the showrunner. They have talked to John, John DiMaggio, who does uh, Jake. They've talked to Finn. They have talked to all the people from this program. I realize this is all pops and buzzes to you at this point. <laughs> But uh, so I guess B, you should be listening to this wonderful podcast. It's, you can see it at uh, infiniteguest.org. It is a podcast called uh, Conversation Parade. And uh, I guess A, you might want to check out a show called Adventure Time. Yeah. Am I the only one watching Adventure Time? Show him. All right. You found the people. They're here. 
What's your chatter? So uh, my chatter is about the ca- the cow palace. Um, <laughs> Are you guys thinking of the 1976 Grateful Dead Cow Palace with Donna, or are you thinking about something else? Um, so the Cow Palace was where the um, 1964 Republican Convention was held, and the reason I was thinking about it is well, we're in San Francisco, so but so is it? And it is, cl- yeah. Although it's not actually Close in it's proper, like yeah. South- was that Goldwater? Yeah, Goldwater in 1964. And so we were talking about the Republican Party and the challenges it's having and everything. And the 1964 convention, if you want to go watch a fun convention. Um, <laughs> no. And I know you no. do, you Adventure Time watchers. <laughs> they care. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing. Um, so there are two things that are amazing with the Republican convention in 1964. The first is that So in 1964, the Republican Party decided that they were going to just forget all these mamby-pamby East Coast moderates. And right now we're in this struggle in the party and people are thinking like, oh, is there like a civil war? And they're sort of hinted at it. And somebody might say something about one portion of the party that's... um, that's a little astringent and then, and everybody will go crazy at the 1964 convention, Nelson Rockefeller stood up and said, basically you're about to nominate somebody on the backs of the Ku Klux Klan, the Birchers, and these people need to be driven out of our party. So imagine we were talking earlier about a debate in which, you know, maybe one of the other candidates needs to like stand up and, and challenge the direction the party's going in. So Nelson Rockefeller stands up and says, The Republican Party fully respects the contribution of responsible criticism and defends the right of dissent in the democratic process, but we repudiate the efforts of irresponsible extremist groups, such as the Communists, the Ku Klux Klan, the John Birch Society, and others, to discredit our party by their efforts to infiltrate positions of responsibility in the party. He is basically saying in the midst of a nominating convention that the guy they're going to nominate is being nominated on the back of these extremists. And he's like shouted down from the rafters. They're screaming at him and then he has to stop and they have to gavel the convention until they let him speak again. And he basically says, this is still a free country, ladies and gentlemen. It's like this m- incredible crucible moment in the, in the Republican Party. He, of course, Rockefeller loses. And Barry Goldwater comes out and says what is his famous line, which is extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. So these debates we're having right now about constancy and principles of the conservative party and what it means to be an American and whether this Republican party is going to go in one direction or another is basically was all taking place here in 1964 at the Cow Palace. And so you should all know, since they're not going to be holding another Republican convention in San Francisco in your (laughs) lifetimes. (laughs) Sorry. That this great piece of history happened here and that there's one other final little media note, which was in 1964, this was the second convention that had really been televised. And the entire strategy of the moderates in the Republican Party was to try to embarrass Goldwater on television and the extremists in the party so that everybody would realize the world was watching and they would change their positions. And in the face of sort of this display of extremism, which of course didn't work at all. And so it was a, there's an interesting little little side note about the media business, which is that much as people now have predicted that extremism, when it pops up for Donald Trump and is going to supposedly kill his campaign, didn't kill it at all. This was happening in 1964, too. So there's nothing new under the sun. It's all been figured out before. All right. 
so my my chatter, I want to start by reading a quote from a great American. One of the curses of American society is the simple act of shaking hands. And the more successful and famous one becomes, the worse this terrible custom seems to get. I happen to be a clean hands freak. I feel much better after I thoroughly wash my hands, which I do as much as possible. So who said this? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, one of my favorite things about Donald Trump is that Donald Trump is a crazy germ-phobe. What? And he is actually shaking hands on the campaign trail, but he apparently, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's, who's out reporting with him, he just has, like, vats of Purell, and he's constantly purifying Although, to be fair to, to all the Mr. Trump, they all have that. Yeah. They all have Purell. They must like. be. I mean, who can blame them? If you had to shake lots and lots of people's hands, you would want a Purell. Well, but to hand. his credit, he has the classiest trough of Purell <laughs> in the entire business. It's gold-plated it's the biggest, Purell. It's the best. It's the classiest trough. Uh, yeah, no, there's an estimate that President Obama, or the president, I suppose, maybe not President Obama, shakes 65,000 hands a year. That's a lot of hands. That's, That's a, a lot, lot of hands, hands to shake. And actually, the, there was this funny moment earlier, a couple, maybe a month ago, when Jeb Bush was polling about trying to sort of compare himself to Trump, and they polled a question about, would you want a president who was a germ-phobe? Because they were trying to see if that was a nice point of attack against Trump. Do people care? Well, I don't know. They, no, the only, was, they're planting this oppo research no, with me, apparently. No, no, no. That was a fi- so they did a public poll where, it, where they, 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 they used the poll to point out all of his weird... Right. It's like a joke on their website. We'll we'll litigate this later. But I would just say, like, I would just make this point. So Donald Trump is obsessed with alien contamination. He's obsessed with the idea that you can wall yourself off from germ-ridden, disease-ridden other. That's his policy. And I would ask yourself, does his germ-phobia, which seems to me exactly that in his own personal life, does that relate to his, his policy positions? Is he an anti-immigration zealot because he's a germ-phobe, or is he a germ-phobe because he's an anti-immigration zealot? <laughs> Our intern is Tarek Barrett. The show is produced by Mike Volo. Faith Smith and Aaron Bergen arranged this live show. Special thanks to the Norse Theater for their hospitality. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at Slate GabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Thank you to the Norse Theater. Thank you all for having us here tonight for John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and Merlin Mann. I'm David Plotz. We'll be back with you next week. Start over here. Reports are that the U.S. has taken in somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 Syrian immigrants. And, you know, when this has come up on interviews with the administration or spokespeople, they say, oh, we're going to take more, but it takes a really long time to do all these background checks on all these people, which seems ludicrous to me, because how do you do a background check on a person coming from Syria when there's no infrastructure to check on these people? But it does make me wonder how much 
a factor is the fact that these people are coming from a predominantly Muslim country play into the fact that they're having a hard time placing them because there's all these fears about extremism among Muslims. Is that, is that a, a deal breaker? Well, I mean, certainly I think you're right that it's relevant to to the level of resistance in, in Europe and in um, the United States and other countries. And also there is a serious question about screening people, right? I mean, actually, international law says that if you are a country processing asylum applications, it is your duty not to let in people who are criminals. So it, there's a reason for screening people. But then there's this question of, is the screening merely becoming an excuse for delay? And is the fear um, of admitting, you know, suspected terrorists so high that we then start denying relief or taking just an extraordinary length of time to let anyone in and help anyone? And, you know, I think for many of us watching these images of um, people being denied access to trains in Germany or, you know, the Hungarians have started arresting people who are climbing over their fences and getting in, those are very chilling images to have out there in the world. And the fact that these are Syrians from a Muslim country, yes, I think it is part of um, the West's resistance to um, to treating their pleas with more urgency. Usually Germans are so good with trains. The, <laughs> the Germans have been so good in this crisis, the, right? I had a telling moment just to, I, my, I had a cabbie today who was a Bosnian Muslim who had been a refugee to the United States and we were talking about his experience and then he, I started asking him about Syria and he was like, well, they're not like us. I mean, they're not you know, we're European. I mean, they're totally different. Right. So I thought, Uh-oh. that's not good. <laughs> okay, first, I need to preface my comment by saying I'm a big um, Slate podcast fan. I listen to all of them. Even mom and dad are fighting, even though my children are really old. But all right. one thing which permeates every single Slate podcast is the incredible Eastern bias and perspective. What are you going to do about this? And John, one mention of the cow palace does not cut it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. What can we do about this? I'm not going to pander to your Western sensibilities. (laughs) Is that all? (laughs) That's all you got. To me, this is just like farther northwest Washington, D.C. I don't know. No, do you... I will say that the producer of all the Slate podcasts, Andy Bowers, has been living in Los Angeles all this time. But he just moved to New York. <laughs> moved yeah. to New York. Things are about to get even worse. Do you guys really? I mean, honestly, like, do people really think irritating. that's a, it's an irritating bias? Oh. Huh. Right. Maybe you should start your own damn podcast empire. <laughs> It can't yes. possibly be that we don't want to talk about things we don't know anything about because... Because <laughs> that rarely stops us. All right. Hi, guys. We talked a lot about the government shutdown or potential government shutdown, and it kind of has this feeling around it like, oh, it's happening again. They're just not wanting to do any work. And so I'm wondering if you think that the Republican Party, this kind of hostage taking tactic they keep pulling when things don't go their way in the government? Is it a show of strength or is it kind of like a last-ditch effort where they're not really sure what to do and so they're kind of trying to hold out for as long as they can without actually doing any work? It's a structural problem that the leaders in both 
I mean, um, Mitch McConnell actually doesn't have this problem, really. I mean, his problem is Ted Cruz, but the rest of the Republicans in the Senate are with him. It's a, but it's a structural problem in the House, which is that John Boehner doesn't have the votes to pass a continuing resolution with his own party. And so it's, it's actually, I mean, it's a structural problem built into the system because the, the ability of a leader to whip his team into shape, you could argue it never really existed in the way that it would be required in this instance. Um, but that he can't just tell people to like shape up and vote the way he wants them to vote. So a lot of it's built into the you know total in- inefficiencies and imperfections of the system and and the way our politics has changed. You know your incentives are now different. You can get money and support and love by not going along in a lot of districts much more than you can by going along. And so that's going to encourage people to not give a damn about collective action if if it's against their conscience and particularly against the wishes of their constituents. I'm just going to warn folks, we're only going to have time for three more questions. So a lot of you guys towards the back, are, we're not going to get to your questions. I'm sorry. So David used the example of Black Lives Matter as a place where you seem social progress in contrast to maybe Planned Parenthood. I wonder if you do think that in the last 30 years that we've come it's significant distance in reaching some more racial equality. And what do you think the chances are that the Black Lives Matter movement will achieve some of its policy demands real time other than just drawing attention to these really significant problems? It seems to me that we are much better at legal equality than we are at practical on the ground economic equality, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. We grant rights, but then when it comes to actually changing people's lives in a way that might change the way the American pie is distributed or people's perception of who benefits, that's much harder to change. And so some of the demands of Black Lives Matter about the way that police treat suspects, some of those problems could be solved with legal solutions. We could change the standard for when police use excessive force um, and how they're trained on unconscious bias, among other things. And I think there has going to be some movement and already is some movement in police departments. But whether we really get to the kind of fundamental inequities um, in terms of our socioeconomic distribution, where people live, how much racial segregation there is in housing, which then, of course, drives school segregation, those are much deeper entrenched questions. And I would like to be hopeful about them, but I feel like we haven't done a whole lot, a very good job of proving that um, those things are really, we're really serious about changing them. Uh, so do you believe that business people can actually make good politicians? I'm someone who has made his career in business, and I really appreciate it and enjoy it and love it. But, you know, I look at the disastrous campaigns that, you know, Meg Whitman and Carly Fiorina have run. I think about the fact that as the president, you can't fire the governor of California or Texas or even Kim Davis, who is a, I mean, who is a PR nightmare, but if, if it were a company. And, you know, I think about how effective Jerry Brown is, who was someone who was governor of California before I was born, and who knows basically where every body in California is buried, which is what makes him so effective. And, like, am I wrong? Like, well, can you... Can you so you're saying effective? you need a lot of cadavers in uh, California? <laughs> Skeletons in closets. Yeah. You know, there's, exactly. a, there's a lot of shits, but I mean... Yeah, Senator, you know. I, here's this body. (laughs) Maybe we're in love with this notion of corporate executive experience, but there isn't a whole lot of history to support it. Well, the one sort of recent example that does support it is Michael Bloomberg, 
my love. But <laughs> but he does. I. It's hard to think of another example. Example. Can you think uh, of any other? Well, examples? the underlying structure of your point is makes sense, which is that there's a George Shultz, um, Secretary of State under. President Reagan said fame, well, and I quote this all the time, so sorry, but... Famously, you, according you know, I was going to say, like, famously <laughs> in my own little world. Um, but he said, you know, when I was in the corporate world, I would say, get this done, and they would go do it. And now I say, get this done, and everybody's like, you know, whatever. You know, they had somebody else, somebody else's job, or it like, you know, so it melts away. Um, and that's been the consistent experience of people who've been in business and who are governors who have had to then, I mean, Mitt Romney talked about that. And so that's always been an impediment. And almost all modern presidents, when they leave, when they talk about the thing that surprised them the most, they say, how little power I had. And so obviously in some cases, presidents have tremendous power, but it's not really the kind of power that you have experience with in the business world. I mean, in other words, to launch wars or do things in foreign policy like that. There's not a lot of people who come to the, or run or talk about government in that way. They talk about sort of how they're going to be incredibly efficient and squeeze um, the problems out of the system. The system is big and full of stuff that's hard to move. So I think it's right to be hugely skeptical. Having said that, you know, the politicians have not been singularly successful in running it. So they would have as difficult a problem as, and they would have some strengths and then they would have huge blind spots. I think the key test that fascinates me about this is if you're from the business world and you don't understand how these things work, what has been an instance in which you have faced a new, and this is why Mitt Romney was sort of, was interesting because he would face new challenges and his job was basically to serially solve new kinds of business challenges that he was faced with. And so you could imagine comes into government it's and looks at it like a new challenge. So his expertise in part was finding a thing that's messed up, figuring out why it was messed up in the way that it was, and then using the available tools to reorient it. And that approximates what a president has to do. And so if somebody is selling themselves as a person with special business skill, it would seem to me that that would be the way in which you would question them to find out if they had that skill, not just the skill to kind of make this narrow thing run, but what's your ability to understand the landscape and adapt and, and read what's going on and then apply whatever your business skill is. And that's, you know, we'll see if any of them can answer that question. All right. Last question over here. So uh, before I start, I'd just like to uh, point out that uh, I wore uh, this shirt in honor of uh, David and Emily's favorite TV show. And I don't know if you can see it, but it says East over here. Oh, um, right. Nice. So, but, uh, it's a there. Friday Night Lights reference. For those of you who only care about adventure land. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my question is actually not for either of you. Uh, John, um, you... <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that there's nothing uh, new under the political sun. But uh, going back to Donald Trump again, who is winning uh, over a bunch of uh, right-wing Republican voters, even though he doesn't really hate Planned Parenthood. And it seems to be that across the world's Western democracies, there's this hankering for outsider candidates. I mean, just last week, um, the Vladimir Putin supporting homeopathy using uh, Jeremy Corbyn won the 
labor leadership, but at the same time, the, the fascist right-wing Nigel Farage also has seen an increase in his support over in Greece. You see the Nazi Golden Dawn as well as the extreme left-wing Syriza gaining power. So is this hankering for political outsiders, as you said, something that's always been there, or is it something that, that it have Western democracies reached an inflection point where we're just going to have to elect these completely inexperienced people, let them fail, and then get back to politicians all right. over again? Right, right. Now, it's, um, it's a great question. I, um, yeah, I was being a little flip about there's something new under the sun, because I think you can, in the Trump case in particular, if you look at the parallels with Ross Perot, there are a lot of them that track. So these are, you know, billionaire candidates who have been successful in their careers, who didn't like trade deals and who took advantage of an anger in the country with the slowness and ineffectiveness of Washington. So that's generally where they, now there are lots and lots of other ways in which they're quite different, but I don't know. I mean, in the American system, the hankering and hungering for something outside of what we've been used to, outside of the emptiness of the current political class, has been there for a long time. The reason I don't know is that we're still in a portion of the process where a small and select segment of the Republican Party is running the show right now, which is the activist, most activist part of the Republican Party are the ones who are the most interested in these candidates right now. But when you get closer to the primaries and caucuses, the group will get bigger and you'll get kind of more garden variety Republicans who are not just constantly obsessed with Republican politics. And then when you get in the general election, you'll get an even bigger group of Republicans. Then if that bigger group is still totally in love with Donald Trump, then we'll find out whether what you're talking about is is up for a test. But I think the big question of this election is whether the old rules of politics have been repealed or whether they'll snap back in. We know they've been repealed in terms of what you can say and what's devastating for your political career because Donald Trump is on like his ninth life in terms of things, as David pointed out, that people predicted would be ruinous to him. But he's still only been at the top of the Republican polls for about six weeks, which is about two weeks longer than Michelle Bachman was at the head of the Republican polls. So there is a pattern. And if you take the traditional pattern of hot summer candidates who activists like which is a thing we've seen before, and say, okay, this is a part of that. And then you take the fact that the opposition is split by 16, or I should say 15 now that Perry's dropped out. That makes sense. That operates by the rules of politics, which is that the, the non-Trump candidates are all splitting the vote up. So that's something we've seen and understand before. We don't know whether this is truly, truly a new thing until we get further down the road. And if that's true, then, then your question comes into play. So we'll have to wait. Time will tell. Thank you, San Francisco. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.